Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, discussions are underway over the possibility of federal help as Manitoba is hit hard by a third wave of COVID-19. We will do whatever we can looking at the system and looking at the possibility of other provinces helping. Uh, We know that the strains and the stresses uh, are at a critical point. Uh, and it's very possible that over the next number of days, it could get worse before it gets better. The House of Commons adopts a motion that says it would be irresponsible to hold an election before the pandemic is over. The idea that the Liberal government would rather um, call an election, the only reason they would do this is because they want to seek power and they're not making a decision in the interest of people. We've been able to get things passed, government is functioning, we've gotten help to people, The only reason the Liberals would do this is because they want power and they would do this at the cost of people. And the Prime Minister condemns the arrest of a journalist by Belarus. The behaviour of the Belarus regime is outrageous, illegal and completely unacceptable. This was a clear attack on democracy and on the freedom of the press. It's Wednesday, May 26th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Dan, thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks for the call, Mark. So let's talk about where we stand on the pandemic. Uh, the federal government is sending help to Manitoba because uh, the the wave, the latest wave, is is on the rise there. Uh, there is optimism in the form of many new doses coming to the country in June and many provinces talking about people receiving a second vaccination in June. Uh, so where do you think we stand overall? Well, you know, progress is being made, uh, certainly on the vaccination front, but I think the situation in Manitoba uh, shows that, you know, we, we're not out of the woods yet and uh, there's still a way to go. Um you know, what's happening in Manitoba right now from, from, you know, what we're able to see from a distance here is, is the very thing that all public policy leaders, premiers, governments, and prime ministers are really most worried about, and that is swamping the health care system where, to where it can't deal with cases as they arrive. And that appears to be what's going on in Manitoba. You know, they've got a, a 140 people in their intensive care units, uh, you know, they've put a whole bunch of cardiac surgeries on hold, cancer cases are on hold, and they're still getting 470-odd cases a day uh, on average in this third wave. So uh, the, the, it's a very insidious thing, the third wave. We're dealing with it here in Nova Scotia as well that um, just kind of creeps up and bites you. And the next thing you know, you've got cases all over the place, and it just shows that, you know, continued vigilance is required. This is not the time to just pop the champagne corks and and think that it's all over. Yeah, and I think another important point that arises from this is that it's not the same everywhere, right? There's a a tendency to kind of look at national trends and and the data that way, but this story is playing out in different ways at different times in different parts of the country. 100% right. And I mean, let's face it, all... As you know, the old expression, all politics is local. Well, uh, you know, all public affairs, when you get down to it, are local. And, uh, you know, this, I, I do think most of the politicians, for the most part across Canada, of various stripes, have been pretty darn good about not overly politicizing the pandemic. 
Uh, I mean, granted, there have been the occasional shots here and there and, and a bit of loose talk, but all in all, I think that everyone is so damn concerned about this that they've been able to mostly put aside partisan things, uh, partisan concerns, and, and deal with the immediate crisis. But yeah, it's it's how you're experiencing it is very true, Mark. I mean, we've got pretty... Uh, 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 you know, passive about it here in Nova Scotia, we became uh, uh, a little bit uh, self-satisfied and overconfident, and, and as a result, we've got this third wave. Um, I'm not sure I could diagnose that in Manitoba, but it sounds similar, and uh, so now they've got another big outbreak there. And, you know, there's still, it's really bad still in Alberta. You know, uh, there's a lot of cases still in Ontario. You know, it, it definitely is still going on. And uh, we shouldn't be lulled into a false state of uh, complacency by by sort of macro numbers out of Ottawa. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about a motion that passed through the House of Commons yesterday declaring a pandemic election as irresponsible. Uh, what do you think about the the fact that this motion passed and the the impetus behind it and whether it's even going to be a factor at all uh, in in Canadian politics? Well, you know, uh, the pandemic has forced all of us to kind of have a foot in two worlds. You know, the world of normality uh, and the world of emergency. Uh, and sometimes we forget which foot's where. And I think in Parliament, uh, you know, they still are politicians. It is a minority government, which by definition is vulnerable and election-prone. Um there is a lot of thrusting ambition up there uh, among the various leaders and the various parties. Um, I'm sure they're waiting to be able to seize what opportunities they can. However, stating that a uh, an election in the middle of this pandemic is irresponsible is, is stating the bloody obvious, let's face it. Uh, Newfoundland had an election and it was about an inch away from utter chaos. Uh, so... This is not the time for an election. This is sure debate everything that has to be debated in Parliament and wherever. But the point is, is that uh, this is not the time to hold an election. Hold people responsible for what they do. Hold the government responsible for what they do. And when the election comes, Canadians can decide for themselves whether or not the uh, Trudeau government has done a good job, or or otherwise. Uh, but, you know, the pandemic is not over. Now, the great question is, who's going to decide when it is over? Mark? Exactly. I mean, is it going yeah. to be, yeah, after everyone's got two shots? So maybe that would be August or September, given the current numbers. Um, but just because all these people have been vaccinated or a large number, say 75% of the population or so, does not necessarily mean it's over. Um, but it might mean that they can start preparing for an election uh, carried out under special conditions and, and, and safe conditions uh, across the country. Yeah, I could see a scenario where uh, where somebody, whoever's forcing the election, whether it's the prime minister or opposition parties, could say, well, it's largely over now because this, this and this have happened and, and now is the time for an election. And so I don't think it changes anybody's timetable uh, because by August or September, the perception could be that we're in a much different place. So... We'll see if that's Well, the I case. can tell you with, with a fair bit of confidence, Mark, I don't have a poll in front of me, and maybe somebody will go ask this question, but I don't know of anybody who's talking about an election other than the political par- parties uh, and the press gallery in Ottawa. It's sure. not 
the Canadian people are not demanding an election. Uh, they may want to change governments. I don't know. The polls don't suggest they're crying out for immediate change. Um, so this is really um, a matter that's going on in a different uh, uh, atmosphere than where I think most of the Canadian public are. Yeah. As is often the case when we're speculating about election timing. Uh, let's acknowledge that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's turn to the situation in Belarus. Um, the Prime Minister yesterday condemned the actions of Belarus in uh, the apprehending, uh, uh, the grounding of a flight and the apprehending of a journalist um, and and said further sanctions might be coming. Uh, Belarus then recalled its ambassador to Canada. Uh, what do you think about how this is playing out? Well, this is the problem of uh, 21st century geopolitics is that you have pockets of authoritarianism uh, like Belarus or like Russia or a few other places, and no need to put in a list, but uh, Belarus is a particularly nasty version of it. Uh, this Lukashenko character is a, a brutal dictator, and obviously does not feel intimidated by the outside world. I, I can't remember um, any country or state organizing something like, uh, you know, an air hijacking in order to arrest some hapless journalist just because the guy's been critical of the uh, of the government or of the regime, I should say, in, in Belarus. So um, this was an outrageous affront to international law and the norms of, of international affairs. And uh, I hope the world community comes down as hard as it can on Lukashenko. And that, but what I think they have to do is sever his support from, say, Putin, and these other uh, autocrats who who support that type of uh, behavior. And, uh, you know, this is something I think the Americans can play a positive role now that Trump is out of the way. Uh, but I think all the countries in the West and the countries in that region, uh, I think, have to speak up and say, look, this is simply not acceptable on any level. Uh, we should do uh, everything possible to get... Uh, this Protasevich out of jail. I mean, they also seized his girlfriend, who's a Russian citizen, and they've ordered her detained for a couple of months. So this is a, you know, absolutely flagrant violation of every international norm I can think of. Um, but it is a test of the West, uh, as well as a test of uh, the Belarus regime, to uh, have an impact on them. And sometimes sanctions aren't necessarily... Uh, a quick answer to it. It's a long grind to impose sanctions and make them work. Yeah. All right. As we wrap up, Dan, uh, just quickly, we should we should note the fact that today is Mike Duffy's last day in the Senate of Canada. He turns 75 tomorrow. The senator from Prince Edward Island has maintained a pretty low profile since he returned to the Senate after his suspension. But he spoke this week about how he had been mistreated by his fellow senators and how uh, the system needs to change. Um, this this is the end of a chapter, obviously, for Mike Duffy and for uh, for the Senate. Um, what do you think about that? Well, uh, as you know, Mark, I wrote an entire book about the Mike Duffy affair, and uh, uh, you know, so it's it's a poignant moment in a way. But you know, Mike Duffy did keep a very low profile since uh, you know he got better legal advice a few years ago to just kind of shut his trap about everything. And, 
you know, but he still is, despite the so-called low profile, probably still the most identifiable senator. Uh, I mean, granted, that's not that much competition among the uh, the group that's in the Senate now, but uh, probably most people could name, if you name, had to name one senator, you could probably name Mike Duffy for whatever reason. So, um, you know, it's it's an end of a turbulent period for Mike Duffy. Um, I'm sure it's a period that the Senate itself is glad to put behind it. But I think the question still remains is, you know, does Canada really need and still support the idea of an unelected and mostly unaccountable Senate? And, um, you know, has the Senate done enough to reform itself, given the lessons learned in the Duffy affair? Uh, so I, I don't know. The jury's still out on those things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a better Senate now than it was 10 years ago. But uh, whether uh, it still has a place in a 21st century democracy is a question that has not been answered. All right. Great points. A pleasure as always, Dan. Thank you for joining us today. Okay, Mark. Take care. That is Dan Legere, longtime political writer and broadcaster. But of course, I expect all Canadians to follow um, the Canada's quarantine requirements. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today in the Toronto Star. Susan Delacourt argues the Prime Minister has reasons to travel abroad, but no excuse to avoid quarantine when he comes home. Delacourt writes, Justin Trudeau is likely to be headed into quarantine again soon if he decides to attend next month's G7 summit in the UK. Although he is Prime Minister, he doesn't get a pass from the quarantine rules. That at least appears to be the view of Canada's chief public health officer. No doubt Trudeau and his advisors are weighing the symbolism of it. Heading out on the road will represent a milestone in getting out of the pandemic for him and for the population as a whole. In the Hamilton Spectator, Nina DeVries argues COVID-19 has taught us we need to fix our broken food system. DeVries writes... The plight of slaughterhouse work gained media attention when outbreaks of COVID-19 hit facilities nationwide. Many slaughterhouse employees have died from COVID-19, and many questions remain unanswered of how outbreaks were handled. There needs to be a shift away from this industrial model of producing meat, and a move towards more sustainable systems where human and animal welfare is a priority. In the National Post, Tasha Carradine argues Aaron O'Toole gets the last laugh over the progressives' tempest in a beer can. Carradine writes, The reaction to Aaron O'Toole's tweet merits a closer look for what it reveals about the political process and how Twitter mobs can be manipulated with 11 little words. At first blush, O'Toole's tweet misses the mark. That is, until you consider the reference to his wife having a beer waiting for him. That line was designed to poke a hornet's nest of progressives happy to light up the internet at a moment's notice. The theory goes, cue the tweet storm, cue the backlash, cue the votes. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Auditor General will be releasing two reports later today, both looking into the Trudeau government's handling of how it provided essential equipment and resources during the pandemic. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, today at around 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Auditor General Karen Hogan will table her two reports. They're called performance audit reports in Parliament. Then about an hour later, she'll hold a media availability to speak to reporters about her findings. She's looking into, first of all, specifically, and this is how her office describes it, quote, whether the Public Health Agency of Canada and Health Canada before and during the pandemic helped meet the needs of provincial and territorial governments for certain items of PPE. 
notably N95 masks and medical gowns, as well as medical services, notably testing swabs and ventilators. That's unquote. In her second report, she describes her focus as, quote, whether Indigenous Services Canada provided sufficient personal protective equipment, nurses, and paramedics to Indigenous communities and organizations in a coordinated and timely manner. So very specific focuses, but we all know that in the early phases of the pandemic, federal government agencies were scrambling to procure and provide all of those essential items of equipment and devices. So, Mark, the Auditor General's report may well provide some pretty damning fodder for opposition parties and critics of the government's response to the pandemic. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will attend the Liberal Caucus meeting and question period. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will virtually attend the Liberal Caucus meeting. She will appear at a Committee of the Whole for the consideration of the 2021-22 main estimates. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will hold a news conference after his virtual caucus meeting. He will also speak at the YMCA Canada annual general meeting. Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller will hold a news conference to provide an update on COVID-19. Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson will take part in a virtual carbon pricing leadership coalition event at the World Bank Group's Innovate for Climate annual conference. The Minister for Women, Mariam Monsef, will announce a high-speed internet investment in central and eastern Ontario. Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie and National Revenue Minister Diane Le Boutelier will hold a news conference to talk about support for a new tourism attraction in the city of Gaspé, Quebec. Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne will make an announcement about new lunar projects and discuss progress made in relation to Canada's space strategy. And the Senate Committee on Social Affairs, Science and Technology will hear from Employment Minister Carla Qualtro on elements of the Budget Implementation Act. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, May 26th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.